Hi there, and welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the power of communication. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. And today, we are inviting you to join us for a very special conversation with George Jones. George is the CEO of Washington, D.C.-based Bread for the City, which supports people living with low incomes to develop their power to determine the future of their own communities. They provide food, clothing, medical care, and legal and social services to reduce the burden of poverty. What I will tell you is that George is one of Washington, D.C.'s most effective leaders, working to solve some of the city's most pressing challenges. So effective, in fact, that Georgetown University honored him a few years back with the John Thompson Jr. Legacy of a Dream Award. What I love about George, though, is not the awards he's won, but that he doesn't exist to advance just the mission of Bread for the City. He exists to address solutions to the root causes that exist around poverty, homelessness, and food insecurity in DC. And I think that's what you will take away from learning from him today. George, as we get into the conversation, as you know, on this show, we talk about the role that communications plays in social change. And clearly you have seen the effect of that up close. We'll get into that in a little bit, but first, welcome. And I'd love if you help ground us today by telling us a little bit about your own journey as a communicator for change. Thanks, Carrie, for having me on. Uh, as you say, I'm George Jones. I'm the CEO of Bradford City. And uh, I've been at Bradford City for over 27 years now. Uh, and it really has been a journey. Actually, my entire professional career has been centered around um, social justice, centered around providing services and supporting communities uh, with folks who are living on low incomes. Um, and so I've had, uh, and in some ways it feels like I've had two sort of phases of my career. Um, early on, a lot of the work was really focused on the direct services piece, sort of making sure that uh, at every sort of stop, I was trying to address, in, in some instances, employment, access to employment, uh, access to uh, training opportunities, uh, and more access to housing. But more recently, when I when I actually came to Bradford City from Los Angeles in 1996, uh, what I found at Bread and what I was asked to help lead at Bread was this effort to provide this holistic array of services to community members live in DC who were living on low incomes. So at Bread, as you said earlier, we provide food and clothing and medical and legal and social services. Um, and that was really that was really sort of what we were grounded in in the, the mid uh, to late 1990s. Um, and that was important work. It still remains important work. It remains a real central part of how Bradford City tries to address poverty. Uh, but you know, in, in the, the 2000s, uh, particularly you know, sort of late uh, 2000, nine, 10, and really right at 2011, I would say, uh, was when, in a lot of ways, there was a sort of a game-changing moment for Bread and for me. Uh, you know, at that, by that time, I had been at Bread for, gosh, almost 15 years. Uh, and one day I got cornered by some staff who said to me, you know, George, you know, it was right after Trayvon Martin was, was killed. And they said to me, hey, have you ever wondered why the only people who seemed to come into Bread City, and we were seeing literally thousands of people every month seeking out services. And he said, the only people who come to you are, are black people or, or brown people, or people of color. You've ever asked yourself that question? And I hadn't really 
sort of you know, analyze what that was all about, the intersection between race and, and poverty. Uh, but the challenge they threw out to me is to go through, uh, take racial equity training. Uh, and I went through a training uh, back in 2011, 2012, that really sort of helped me gain an analysis of the intersection between um, race, racism, and, and poverty. And that was really important because, you know, one of the things you learn in that space is the sort of role of power. And I have, happen to be blessed with a certain amount of power at Breathe City. And so I was able to really quickly sort of make the decision that all of our staff would go through the training. And ultimately, we got the board to commit to going through this training. And that was that was really important uh, because when we when we made that decision, we decided to go from just thinking about the direct services, what we now call sort of downstream work, providing services to people where they are, people who are already living in poverty, to try to go upstream and really think about how do you interrupt the systems that we that we really believe perpetuate uh, the the situation and the and the, the sort of uh, existence of poverty in D.C. and probably throughout the country. So that's been that's been a really big part of the story. And I look forward to talking a little bit about what that means. I also look forward to talking about, you know, how we've been telling that story uh, on our blog posts, on our website. Uh, and, and I've probably done any number of interviews telling the story about Brett's journey, my own personal journey, and what that's meant in terms of changing how we fight poverty in D.C. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate where you started, George, because I remember those years, 2008, 2009, 2010, there were these aha moments happening in social services that I think continue to happen, right? Sometimes those those aha moments happen earlier, sometimes they happen later in an organization's life cycle. But that that opportunity to think bigger and more holistically about the way that your organization was showing up in service of a larger, greater good beyond the, um, sometimes what I think about as the production value of a nonprofit, right? It's not just about delivering services. It's about something much deeper than that. Yeah, this idea of how do you, how do you really make an impact that is, that transcends the direct services we deliver and really sort of, as I said, goes upstream and really sort of work with policymakers and work with the other civic leaders to really understand how do we sort of collectively change you know, change what's happening in our communities in a way that um, it, that hopefully one day is really reduces the amount of uh, folks who come in need of these direct services because we have systems that work much better, and and we have um, you know we have a, a city, if you will, that provides opportunity in a more equitable and, and just way. Right, right. I mean, what an incredible goal that is to really be focused on that idea of not just breaking the cycle of poverty, which we know is a very complicated goal to break, but to think about the role that every individual and every organization can play to advancing a more just and equitable society and world. That's right. Yeah. You know, this question about, I think I, I, when Brad started to talk about this and my staff started to push me to their credit, to sort of be more progressive, to be, uh, you know, more outspoken about what can be done. I, I had some skepticism myself about what can an organization do to sort of about these sort of major challenges, these things that have existed for, you know, decades, scores of years, if not hundreds of years, uh, what could a, what could a breath of the city do to sort of change uh, the sort of what was happening, the trajectory of poverty and, and, the, and the outcomes for people living in DC. And, and what I discovered is that everybody can do something like individuals can certainly 
minimally individuals who care about justice and 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 and, um, and want to help their fellow community members do better can understand. There's a way to learn what we can do as individuals, how we can sort of undo some of the thinking that we have about about you know why people are poor, uh, the thinking we have about um, government and its role in helping fight poverty. Uh, and then we can think in particular those of who are leading organizations like Breath of City. And Brit, you know, sort of probably is would be considered a large nonprofit. We're now a $22 million organization. But when I got here some 30 years ago, nearly 30 years ago, we were just under $2 million as an organization. So we were relatively small. Uh, and we have we have really sort of uh, seen a little bit like Margaret Mead said that don't that don't doubt that a, a handful of people can change the world in some ways it's the only thing that has and so I think we've adopted that belief that you know the 140 employees who work at Breakfast City the board members we all believe that we can not only help change what's happening at Breakfast City but our, using our voices communicating our story can really help inform what the city does to try to uh, fight poverty in a more comprehensive way. George I suspect there are probably days that this work feels like a job for you and probably a very heavy job but I suspect there's probably more days than not that it feels deeper than a job. And I'm curious if you're willing to take us way back, right? We know you've been with Bread for the City since 1996. What was your journey to Bread for the City? What, what kind of influences did you have along the way that brought you here? You know, I love answering that question because I, I, it really is a story. You know, I believe in I, I was about 12 years old when I decided I wanted to, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to help people. Of course, as a 12-year-old, I didn't know what it, that really meant, what that was called, but there was something very much uh, intrinsic in who I was that sort of said uh, that I wanted to do something to help people. And my my inspiration was not surprisingly Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., like it was like he was for so many people. I was born in 1960, so I was a, a young child of the you know the civil rights movement, and so knew his story as a child knows it. But it, but it, I was inspired so much by uh, his challenge to, to serve people, uh, you know, which was part of his message is that service uh, was so important and that that was the legacy we should all try to leave uh, in our lifetime. And so that early on, I, I knew I wanted to do something. That, by the time I got to college, I majored in psychology. I started to get a handle on what that would be, how that could, how I could sort of live out that, that sort of calling, if you will, to service. And I, um, and my first job, I had an internship at a at a nonprofit in Chesapeake, Virginia, which is near my hometown of North Virginia. Uh, and that was when I really saw for firsthand what 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 the work looked like. I worked at a nonprofit that worked with folks who were suffering from mental illness, and that was that was an eye-opening experience. Uh, and uh, and it, and it was confirmation for me that I, I, this is what I wanted to do. I mean, I think some people get in those spaces and maybe get you know, sort of overwhelmed by it and really, uh, and and make the decision that maybe it isn't for them, but it was confirmation. It was, I, I enjoyed that job. Uh, I worked for seven years in that space. Uh, I ultimately ended up moving out to California and worked for another nonprofit that, interesting enough, changed the kind of approach it had to poverty. And that's the other thing I think I learned in my journey is that there's so many challenges for people who are living uh, in disadvantaged situations. And in that space, uh, Los Angeles had the largest home. I think they still do have the, have the largest uh, number of people experiencing homelessness. 
um, and I went and, and got a job in Skid Row in Los Angeles mm. uh, and worked there for seven years. Uh, and our focus was to try to figure out how to help people get off the streets, to get uh, clean and sober, to get back into work. And so my early training and my early sort of story is all about direct service. It's all about getting involved, really getting your hands dirty, trying to figure out how to help individuals who were struggling uh, with any number of you know, sort of issues that really had them living in poverty. Uh, I think there were 10,000 people at the time living in, uh, in Los Angeles who were experiencing homelessness, just in that downtown area called Skid Row. Uh, but it was such a powerful thing. And again, the thing I can I can say so honestly today is I was, you know, I was so, it was so clear to me that that was where I was supposed to be. That was what I was supposed to be. I, I just loved doing that work uh, and loved this opportunity to try to make a difference, uh, you know, in the lives of others. Uh, it was, you know, it was important work. It was rewarding. Uh, I got to do some super, you know, got to elevate it to some supervision roles there. Ultimately, I became effectively the deputy director at that organization. And that was where I really sort of got some some management experience that would really be really important when I finally decided to move back east and apply for the job at Bread for the City. Uh, at the time, the title was executive director. Ultimately, it was changed to CEO. Uh, but I came in and talked about and when I interviewed for the job, I remember telling uh, the folks that, that the board that I interviewed with uh, that I saw myself as a, as a servant leader, that, you know, that that's the style of leadership that, that, I, that really you know, sort of defined how I would approach helping lead Breakfast. And I hope that that's been true, that, you know, in a lot of ways, service to the people who work here at Bread, always trying to figure out a way to, to make Bread a more equitable, just place for the people we work, who work for us. And certainly, you know, um, service to the community members, the, the tens of thousands, we serve probably 30,000 unique individuals every year here at Breakfast mm -hmm. City and trying to figure out how to make sure that, that my contribution to, uh, to, the, to the work of serving those community members is, is a servant leadership uh, style. Uh, but again, you, I, it takes me back to this idea of um, finding a, a voice for the organization around racial justice, social justice. Um, was, it's a, I think it's the thing that's been the hallmark of the last decade of my journey and speaking out and speaking to people who want to understand, uh, again, this intersection between uh, racism uh, and race and poverty, trying to help people understand that there is a, a sort of a, a historic link to those things, you know, starting from slavery all the way to Jim Crow to uh, you know, the civil rights period and separate but equal. I mean, this country has been on a journey really trying to undo and reverse sort of all the ill effects that all sort of are rooted in, in you know, in the original sins of, of, of slavery here. And so, uh, you know, helping people understand that story, but helping them understand in a real practical way mm -hmm. that there are practical things we can do to, to, un to reverse the sort of impact. Of, and a lot of that centers around uh, one of the things that's really important is to talk about the difference between equality and equity. I mean, that's been one of the real important lessons. You know, uh, I think it's been sort of in the American kind of ethos that equality was the thing to be lifted up. Uh, and, and, you know, and we kind of get the spirit of that. But the truth of the matter is, again, I, I, I think Dr. King was one of the people who said, I don't think he originated, but a quote he has is, there's, there's nothing so unequal as treating people who are in unequal situations equally. Uh, and so that's that's what we learn in this equity space is that, 
you know, when people have been and a race of people have been uh, denied opportunities, whether it's in housing or employment or education uh, uh, in terms of wealth building, like all of the things that we, when people turn to us, we find that folks have, have been denied opportunities in all of those spaces. And you're talking about people who are now in, in unequal situations with the rest of us who live in privilege, who've had opportunities to go to college and to, and to build wealth and, and to find jobs that pay living wages. So, the, the, you know, those are the two sort of, that's the dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots, if you will. Uh, and, and it requires an equitable response, something that is going to be responsive to the disparity between the things that those of us who have got these privileges have uh, and the things that folks who come to Breath of the City uh, lack every day. You know, they lack access to affordable housing, uh, to fresh and accessible food and to uh, jobs that pay, you know, a living wage or more and the ability to create wealth. Um, and so that's 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 a part of the story. It's the thing that people who really want to take on this work will learn uh, and, and learn how to sort of undo because we think that there are ways to really reverse those trends and, and eliminate those disparities, but we have to be intentional about it. We have to be committed to it. And Breakfast City has said that in this, in this new mission statement that that's what it's about. And we've been trying to spread that message throughout this community. We believe that DC as a whole can be what we call an anti-racist city. We believe that it can be a city that intentionally uh, eliminates this, this, the socioeconomic disparities that so many of the people that Breakfast City serves uh, experience. Mm. So what's striking me as I'm listening to you, George, is I, I suspect there are a lot of people who think broadly or, or specifically about Washington, D.C., and can name things that are wrong with this city. But I suspect that the, the gift that, that you have and your colleagues have is that you can see the city and its people and its potential in a slightly different light and in a different frame of reference, right? So I'd love you to talk about how you see your city, and then let's talk about what an anti-racist city can look like, too. Absolutely. Well, I, I see a city that is uh, particularly the residents of this city, people who, as you said, they really see the challenges and want to, I, I rarely talk to a person here who doesn't want to help eliminate or, or at least doesn't envision a city where we don't have all these socioeconomic disparities that play itself out between people of color and people who identify as white, the housing and the, and the income and the health outcomes. I mean, you look at a socioeconomic indice in D.C., uh, and the disparities between uh, black and, and white and brown and white are just glaring. I mean, they're just extreme. But but if you talk to the residents in Washington, D.C., no matter what ethnicity or race they identify with, they would all say that those disparities are horrific and we need to figure out something to do to sort of eliminate them. I think what, what I'm excited about and what I'm glad you really have given me a chance to share is this in this anti-racist D.C. campaign paying that I and several other DC activists are, uh, have been really sort of trying to advance for the last you know, almost two years now um, and trying to sort of create an audience of folks who will get behind this campaign uh, is, uh, is the promise that you alluded to. Like the promise is this, that in a city of 700,000 people, many of who uh, are, are very much sort of uh, among the privileged, very much well off, uh, that those folks have power 
Uh, and one of the, our, our sort of theory is that there, there are at least nine sectors in DC that would be important to come together collectively to utilize the power to both analyze the challenges that are, are driving these disparities uh, and then utilize the power that these sectors have, particularly when they work collectively together. And the sectors include business and labor and uh, academia and nonprofits and philanthropy, government, faith-based groups, community itself. In fact, I should start with community, centering community members in, the, in this work. Uh, if we can bring all those sectors together, I really, really believe, I think our, our organizing committee, as we call ourselves, uh, the Anti-Racist DC Organizing Committee, really believes that we could collectively come together and think about how, how do we behave in anti-racist ways? How do we create anti-racist policies? How do we create anti-racist behaviors? How do we create anti-racist goals and objectives? And of course, the ultimate anti-racist goals and objectives is to eliminate those disparities. And if we do all of that and we do it at scale, in other words, if enough of us come together, if we talk about thousands of people in this city all committing to those goals, those objectives, uh, and those uh, and those behaviors, and we do it over a long period of time, we've sort of marked uh, a decade as the as the sort of time period that we could see real change. I've talked about eliminating those disparities altogether, but let's face it: even if we reduce them by half in a decade, people would, one, the needle would be moved so dramatically, you'd see those changes in terms of the quality of life in DC for people who historically have lived uh, in, in poverty. Uh, and, and, and I think we'd, we'd, we'd really create a sense uh, going, moving forward that we can do this, that we can make the changes. Uh, you, you said earlier, you, said, you mentioned the term, uh, breaking the cycle of poverty. In a, in a way, that's an old concept, but in a lot of ways, that's a simple way of talking about what, what we're here. The other thing that I think is, is at least my own personal uh, ambition or, or vision about this is there's another term that, that's uh, oftentimes associated with Dr. King, which is uh, creating a beloved community. Uh, and so when you think about, yes, changing these, these outcomes and these indices and the, and the life project trajectory for people of color, in particular young people, kids, some who are unborn now. That's a powerful thing. It's a technical thing that, and, and, and a noble goal. Uh, but the beloved community would be about creating a group of people who were committed to doing that moving forward, who would see that as a way of life, uh, of you know, sort of becoming together, staying together as a community, uh, so that so it wouldn't just be a moment of time when we would eliminate those disparities but we'd keep them from ever showing up again in this city. George, the balance between those two concepts, as you noted in an old outdated uh, frame of reference, breaking the cycle of poverty to a modern, optimistic, progressive view of creating a beloved community and the difference between the two of, of one is focused on the broken, the other is a community collectively coming together Absolutely. To support its own success and, and future. And creating relationships right. that are just as vital, if not more vital, to, to, to eliminating the, the outcomes. I mean, we, we really think that it's the relationships that will hold us, uh, that will bind us as we work together. Because the work, is, you said this to me earlier, the work is difficult work. We, we talk about leaning into the difficulty of bringing about racial equity. Uh, there is that, there is that, 
challenge and you have to lean into it because it is, you know, it's um, you have to commit to things like non-closure. You know, we, we like in our society to have, you know, sort of a very linear, you do one and two and three, one and two gets you three. That's not really how this work will go. Uh, you know, there'll be two steps forward and one backwards. We know that it's going to be challenging. Uh, and we'll be asking people to exercise sort of civic and philosophical muscles that they haven't really exercised maybe, you know, in their own lifetime, because to a large degree, they may have been working individually towards their own personal goals. And you know what? There's there's no roadmap for it. Because we are, as you said, we're built, right? We're a society, we're a nation that's built on some falsehoods. And so we almost need to create that roadmap in real time around how you get to the vision of a beloved community. And we, and we, in our movement, we're talking about co-creating. I'm glad you used the term creating because we, we use the term co-creating the solutions. People oftentimes ask me, George, tell me what the goals are. I say, you don't want me to tell you what they are. But what I'm asking you, I'm inviting you to the table to help co-create how we get to this beloved community, how we get to this place where these disparities just don't disproportionately affect one group of people over another. Uh, and again, the, the, the beauty of D.C. is that it's rare that you'll find somebody who doesn't say that they can get behind that premise. Like they, whether they're black or white, they, they, you know, they believe that these disparities shouldn't fall along racial lines. There is something you are, it's, it's underpinning everything you have said so far. And I'll just reinforce it because I think it's so important is relationships and that we cannot ever get to a beloved community without relationships. We cannot ever see a different future than the one we are living without relationships. There was someone who came on the podcast a while back. Her name is Mia Birdsong, and she wrote a book called uh, How We Show Up. And she talks quite a bit about the power of community and relationship and actually redefining what community is and how to be in it together. Um, and that it's not nothing about the work you are doing is a simple problem and there is no simple solution. So this idea, as you noted, from A to B equals C or one, two equals three, it's so much more complex than that. And the, the power of what you've started to frame out here, the, the roadmap for an anti-racist city is grounded in relationships first. Am I hearing that right? That's right. So we are. And so that's the work that we've been about. A lot of people ask, when are we going to start dealing with the policies and doing we're like we have to come together with around our relationships. We have to bring people from all these sectors to the table, particularly people who have lived experiences, the community members and the leaders in these sectors, and we need to come together and build community at that level, and relationships at that level, because hopefully that'll sort of be what really um, bolsters us, really keeps us committed. During those tough times, there'll be tough times, whether you know we have a down spiral in the economy or some incident that breaks out in the city. I mean, we need the kind of relationships and, and unity of purpose that won't allow us to, to quit you know, when the tough gets, when the going gets tough. So let me ask you a, a tough question, and maybe there's no answer to it, but I'm thinking about all of those in our city of Washington, D.C., who have been harmed by systems, who don't have trust in the systems that exist, and yet we know trust is needed for those strong relationships and for this work to advance. How do you see organizations, or maybe it's even elected officials in D.C., thinking about how do we build that trust? How do we foster the trust to be able to have the kind of deep conversations that I know that's that's what you're envisioning? 
Well, again, I I, I think we we're going to lean on this idea of, of centering community members, their voices, their their you know, physical presence in this work, and that's challenging. Uh, it means you have to resource that. You have to make sure that community members who oftentimes don't have the kind of flexibility that a, a CEO of a nonprofit has and controls his own schedule and has disposable income and and can and can uh, you know can rely on an, uh, an assistant to do some of the work back at the office or a team of people while he's out at a meeting. We, we've got to really accommodate for that. And a lot of that really means resourcing and supporting those community members who have the lived experiences, who who probably, like as you said, struggle with trust to some degree and know where uh, where they've been disappointed and how systems have failed them personally. They can talk firsthand about that. We need those voices in the room. So that's going to be a big part of our approach to this work. Uh, we need them to be in leadership to some degree, uh, which again means supporting them. The other thing we need is to talk about relationship building. I think both the analysis about anti-racism, which is a real thing people can go through and really get a sense of, really to answer what I find with those that training is, you answer some of the questions you have about how this all fits together. You really sort of understand how to connect the dots. And that really, I think, gives people confidence that, okay, there's a real uh, there's a real explanation about how we got where we are and a real sort of, uh, I can see the vision. I can begin to see the vision of how we can underdo, undo where we are. Uh, but I think the other thing is some of, something that I'm just starting to explore myself is this idea of restorative you know, justice. This, the idea that, because uh, the, the beauty of restorative justice, and not only is it sort of speak to, you know, how do you get justice for people who've been harmed? Uh, in whether it's an individual case or by the government or by a system that they've tried to trust. Like there's a way that there's approach to, you know, sort of a, a clinical almost approach to restorative justice. But the other thing about restorative justice, it, it also starts with developing relationships. You know, that, that and, and one of the things that, that, that the experts in restorative justice tell you is one of the best ways to, to build relationships is to allow people to tell their stories. I've been really sort of moved as I've read sort of some of the literature by this premise that, you know, start with letting the person who's been harmed just tell their story. Like there's something powerful about the ability to talk about whether it's in a housing system that's harmed somebody or an individual that's harmed somebody or even a nonprofit that's harmed people. And one of the things I've really gotten into practice to is I, I you know, I will. I will share my phone number with community members, my cell phone number. I will let them come in and meet me. I had somebody here this morning and she said, you know, you didn't even ask me why you wanted to meet. You just said, yeah, come and talk to me. Uh, because I know the power of people just being able to share their story. Like that is the beginning of developing relationships. And so that'll be a lot of what we we try to lift up and foster and, and build space for and around as we as we try to get, you know, we try to advance the work. So as we come to the end of this conversation, how in the world did that happen already? George, I'm, I'm ready to stay on the phone with you for two more hours at least. But um, I want to carry forward one more thought I'm hearing from you, which is we can think about the issues we work on as intractable, as so big they will never be solved. We can also think about what can we do every day to get closer to the story and closer to the storyteller? Because I think that's when relationships start to form trust starts to build, change starts to happen. And I think you and, and your team are a great example of that, of how you are setting up a new set of norms and standards for what the future of DC could look like. Absolutely. I, I should mention to that 
that point. Our governance board actually has majority of the people on our governance board actually are patients, they're community members. Uh, and so every, and we have a board meeting every month, every month I get to hear and hear them. And sometimes stories that aren't so uh, easy to hear about the disappointments they might've had when they tried to get service from Bread for the City. But having those folks in the room, both listening to me and my staff report out about what's happening at Bread and have, then having them tell me about their experiences and what their hopes and dreams are for how Bread will continue to, to, to do a better job. Uh, it's, it's about, it is that creating that space for folks to tell their story and to, and to speak their truth to, to, to us. That's, so yeah, I, I, so we are trying, Bread's trying to live out that uh, and so it's why I believe so much in it being critical to us, uh, to us creating those relationships that will, mm. will help us make the change. So, so a parting thought, where can people go to learn more or what do you want to reinforce as folks wrap up this awesome conversation today? Well, of course, you can always go to Bread for the City's website, um, www.breadforthecity.org. That's a place where you can see Bread's work. And we have plenty of articles about the racial justice work we've done. Uh, the systems reform work and, and the direct services work we do. So that's the place we're going. We're still in the process of creating a, a, a and sort of updating our anti-racist DC uh, website. And so we're not quite ready for prime time yet with that, uh, but that'll be another space where we're hoping to sort of really have folks to be able to turn to it. And what, what I'll promise people is that ultimately that link will end up on Bread for the City's website. And so they will get a chance to actually uh, to follow the work of the anti-racist DC campaign. Uh, and, and if they're a DC resident, uh, particularly in leadership, uh, I, I certainly hope that they'd even consider getting involved mm. in the work. Well, George, what an awesome honor to connect with you today and learn from you. Thank you for modeling inclusive leadership and brave leadership as you all are, are going on such a remarkable and important journey on your own. And thanks for sharing such incredible insights with our listeners today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And I hope I get a chance to come back and, and talk to you again about our work. That sounds like a plan. Thanks, All George. Right. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Mission Forward. Thanks for tuning in today. If you are stewing on what we discussed here today, or if you heard something that's going to stick with you, drop me a line at carry at mission.partners and let me know what's got you thinking. And if you have thoughts for where we should go in future shows, I would love to hear that too. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Sadie Lockhart in association with the True Story team. Engineering by Pete Wright. If your podcast app allows for ratings and reviews, I hope you will consider doing just that for this show. But the best thing you can do to support Mission Forward is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.